And welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 117, recorded on May 7th, 2019. Today, we'll talk about the big tech tax in Israel, about the European Union's latest investigation into Apple, about Apple's acquisitions in Europe and elsewhere, about six-wheeled cars, and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Isidro Lassa, the former head of Startup Europe within the European Commission. Actually, the interview itself was uh, recorded in Isidro's last day in this position, and it's really an interesting one. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. I just got back from a great trip to Lithuania, and I'm really excited to share with all of our listeners some of the insights from that trip in an upcoming podcast. How was the weather? It was unseasonably cold there. However, I actually got a number of warnings on my Dark Sky app that it was unseasonably cold but I, I managed to get through. It is a bit of a cold snap here as well at the moment. Yeah, indeed. And now you are gearing up to more traveling, right? Right. So tomorrow I'm heading off to Vienna. And then on Friday evening, I'm heading to Dublin for the weekend. And then on Monday, I'm in Estonia for five days. That's a hell so of a plan. So I'm going to not be home for quite a while. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm really happy that uh, I'm going to the next web conference and it's maybe half an hour uh, cycling and a ferry uh, ride uh, from uh, from where I live. But then I also leave for next week for, uh, for a vacation to cycle in Poland, which also means that we both are not around uh, next week. So we will put uh, something together, uh, uh, some interviews uh, for uh, everyone to listen, but the normal uh, service of this podcast will actually resume uh, the week after. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, what uh, has uh, happened in the week that has passed. Uh, what was the biggest deal? Yeah, so last week, the biggest deal went to Spain, where Barcelona's delivery startup Glovo raised 150 million Series D round led by Lakestar. Also included in the round was participation from Drake, which is the main shareholder of the Papa John's pizza franchise, not the Canadian musician. And this, they were also followed by ID Invest. So what is next for Glovo with this investment? Well, there are some rumors that Glovo is looking to go public in the next few months, um, but that's not confirmed. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, with the news about Glovo, I didn't really understand what happened because I also uh, reported this uh, for Tech EU and uh, what I saw uh, when I was just reading around. So they at the same time raised this 150 million round, but uh, the same day they actually announced that they were pulling out of uh, two of their markets. Uh, they left uh, Egypt and they left uh, Chile uh, at the same time. And I'm not really sure how exactly this kind of aligns with their strategy of expanding to more uh, markets. But anyway, I 
most probably will be able to interview uh, a co-founder of uh, Glovo during the during the conference here in Amsterdam. So probably within the next uh, couple of weeks, we will learn more both about the IPO plans and uh, what's going on with the geographic expansion. Now, before we dive in uh, to the actual news and stories and whatnot, a bit of an important uh, housekeeping announcement. Uh, this month, uh, we at TechEU started a new experiment, uh, which is a topic-focused month. So in May, we are shining a light on the industry of digital health, uh, supported by uh, Bayer G4A, which is a global startup program recently launched by one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Uh, you will see and hear more health-related stories and interviews in the coming weeks. And also, if you have something to share on the topic, please feel free to contact us. Uh, we are very interested in uh, uh, talking about uh, everything related to health and uh, medical tech. Now, let's uh, let's move on with the agenda and uh, talk about uh, what uh, happened. Um, because today I'm also coming with uh, uh, policy-related news and uh, I'm going to talk about two different stories. Uh, one of them is from actually last week, which we we're supposed to be talking about. And one is sort of a cheat one from this week. And I think it makes sense because we won't be around to talk about uh, news next week anyway. So uh, first topic, uh, let's look at what's going on in Israel. It looks like the country authorities uh, have uh, uh, seen how the EU is picking at the big tech and decided to follow suit. Uh, the Israel Tax Authority is about to present a new plan to tax the revenue of big tech companies operating in the country, that's including Google and Facebook. And to be precise, the plan is to tax 3 to 5% of these companies' turnover rather than profit in Israel. Israel. Now, a quick side note, uh, this regulation is uh, inspired by a similar regulation that France passed uh, back in March, and that one in turn is pretty much uh, the same thing that was considered by the entire European Union back in 2018. Uh, the idea was that the international tech companies with an uh, annual turnover of over 750 million euros globally and at least 50 million euros in Europe, uh, they would have to pay uh, 3% of uh, their local gross sales volume as a tax. Uh, back last year, the idea did not find enough support. Uh, so it seems like now at least some countries will implement this regulation separately. Now, going back to Israel, according to a story in Globes, uh, the tax authority has been talking to the big tech companies for a while already, but they had been, quote unquote, uncooperative. If this new proposal, though, will become a law, it could cost uh, Facebook, Google and all the rest uh, big companies a total of up to 250 million euros a year. So what happens now? The person to lead the whole process will have to be the new minister of finance in uh, Israel, but uh, nobody really knows who the next minister will be. Uh, after the recent uh, Knesset elections, it is possible uh, that the current minister, uh, Moshe Kalon, will stay in his seat. But there are some political complications that uh, play a role, which are not really relevant uh, for this topic anyway. But we are about to uh, see who is going to be spearheading uh, this uh, effort uh, in a few in a few weeks, I suppose. So one way or the other, it is interesting that by the end of this year, Israel may introduce a new big tech tax, and I would not be too surprised if more countries uh, did so as well. Now, uh, Natalie, something I wanted to ask you: uh, What do you think? Do you think it's actually fair to tax uh, big companies based on turnover rather than profits? 
So way back in 2017, a review by the UK government also suggested that taxing these companies based on turnover was the right strategy. And of all the big tech companies, most of the time when we're talking about taxation and getting companies to pay their fair share, the company that we're often talking about most of the time is Amazon. But despite kind of record profits in the UK, Amazon has effectively been able to cut its last reported tax bill in half. So despite the advice from the government, they haven't been able to put this together. So for the last reported tax bill, um, in 2016, the company paid about £7.4 million. But then after tripling their profits, and also you can imagine increasing their turnover quite quite a bit, it paid a tax bill of only £4.5 million um, last year. But at the same time, it also received a tax credit of $1.3 million from the UK tax authorities. Yeah, that, that's the best part. Apple, of course, is much more profitable than Amazon, and it successfully used so many different ways uh, to avoid tax across Europe. Um, last year, Apple famously um, paid Ireland this 14 billion euro figure in taxes that EU had said it owed. Um, this money is still being held in escrow until uh, the outcome of further court appeals. But I think we can all agree that the current tax regime um, in Europe um, is not totally entirely r- there, um, but there's still quite an open question of what should be the right way um, to manage things. I don't know. I think I think it kind of makes sense, especially if we have this sort of threshold that's like uh, 750 million euros uh, in total turnover and global and like 50 million in Europe. Yeah, I suppose it's not it's not a bad way. At least it's not a bad way to start. Right. Now, uh, let's move to this week's news. And uh, as most of us, I think, expected, uh, the European Commission has decided to launch a formal antitrust investigation into Apple's App Store practices based on the complaint that recently, uh, that was recently filed uh, by Spotify. So the main issue, in case uh, you missed it, was that uh, Spotify uh, said that Apple's behavior uh, was not competitive because uh, the company charges a 30% fee for using its payment platform. Uh, But obviously, it's not a problem for Apple's own music streaming service. Uh, That's Apple Music. Also, according to Spotify, Apple employs uh, many different ways and limitations to discourage using other ways to pay for subscriptions. So here is what the Financial Times reported the other day. Uh, The quote begins, After considering the complaint and surveying customers, rivals, and others in the market, uh, the European Union Competition Commission has decided to launch a formal antitrust investigation into Apple's conduct, according to three people familiar with the probe. The quote ends. So this doesn't really mean much in the short term, I have to say, because the European Union's investigations don't really have any time limits, uh, any particular milestones, and uh, they can take years, and they did take years uh, before. We, we have seen it all. Uh, it could, however, result, I think, in a pretty big shift in how Apple operates, at least in Europe, and also the company uh, can be fined up to 10% of its annual global turnover, uh, which in Apple's case, of course, is a shit ton of money, and that's more than twice as you can uh, uh, get as a fine uh, under GDPR. 
Anyway, this is a really interesting story that's uh, still developing and will be developing for a while, and we will certainly keep you posted. Natalie, I want to turn to you again, and what do you think of this? Uh, uh, do you actually want to make a prediction? So when and how do you think uh, this will end? Well, I think first we need to mention that this is kind of an example of your prediction that you made several weeks ago in this podcast coming true that the EU would take up this, this issue with Apple and Spotify. I think it's, it, it's hard to say what will, what will be the outcome, but I think always when you have these very large highly sophisticated companies, they're always going to be able to maneuver in a way that is going to to benefit them. So despite all of these attempts by government to kind of rein them in and to encourage um, different types of trading strategies, these big companies will always find a way um, to to be um, to be successful um, in, in and, and manipulating um, whatever sort of practices that, that they deem fit. So I imagine um, what will eventually come down um, will be maybe a slap on the wrist for Apple. I don't think the EU would be bold enough to find them up to 10% of their annual global turnover. I just don't see that happening. And I don't think this would be, if there was a case For this, I don't think this would be the one necessarily that would encourage them to get the big guns out um, here. I just don't see that happening. Okay, uh, what amount of money would you consider to be a slap on the wrist for Apple? What's the threshold here? I think some of the recent fines for Facebook that we've seen in the UK um, and it, at the the European level, which was something like less than what point zero five percent of their global turnover, um, that I would expect something comparable to that. Actually, um, I, I can't give a, a exact figure, but kind of in terms of the magnitude of what the fine could be, I imagine it will be in in line with some of these. That is, if they find Apple guilty, and I think in some ways this could be um, argued in, in either way and can be somewhat nebulous. Yeah, the, that's uh, that's why it's really important. I think that's why it can be a sort of a pivotal uh, point for uh, for the industry in general, I suppose, because uh, it's not just about Spotify anymore. Because there are more streaming uh, streaming services, and all these services are monetized uh, uh, in the same way by subscriptions, and they all are on Apple's uh, platform, uh, among others. And of course, they all suffer from uh, from the same issues. So it it, uh, it can be argued uh, that the actual part about changing practices, which would be forced uh, onto Apple if it is found guilty, uh, might be even more important uh, than uh, than the actual money that uh, the fine is going to entail. Now, uh, this is uh, the first uh, time we talk about Apple on today's podcast, and you, Natalie, wanted to uh, talk about uh, it uh, for another reason, right? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about Apple, but kind of on this adjacent topic. So on Monday this week, some remarks were published by Tim Cook, Apple CEO, about the company's acquisition strategy. Apple, of course, as we had mentioned in the previous segment, is one of the world's most wealthiest companies with over 225 billion U.S. dollars on hand. 
And as reported by CNBC, Cook mentioned that they are purchasing a company every two to three weeks on average. And in the last six months, Apple has purchased between 20 and 25 different startup companies. However, many of these acquisitions are not being made public, and it makes me interested in Apple's sourcing, especially because Apple purchases many of these companies at a very early stage. And it's primarily looking for, and I'll quote Tim Cook here, talent and intellectual property, unquote. Cook went on to say, quote, we acquire everything that we need that can fit and has a strategic purpose to it, unquote. Besides this quote sounding, well, maybe a bit sinister, this piece (laughs) got me thinking about acquisitions more generally because they're an important marker of the vibrancy of a startup ecosystem, as well as an indicator of where new angel investors will be popping up. Acquisitions serve to indicate some of the local skills, talents, and competencies that are found in ecosystems and help to highlight areas of competitive advantage. However, data on acquisitions, especially for early stage companies, such as those that Apple is in the market for, is very poor. And we know very little about acquisition activities around Europe beyond those that are reported for PR purposes. When looking at the number of acquisitions around the continent last year, so 2018, tech.eu counted just under 450 of them. And you might think that this is a small number, and you would be right, because there were undoubtedly many more deals that were never reported. And since we can't count what we can't see, we'll never know what the true numbers actually are. And similarly, for those acquisitions that we know about, and I've just looked again at the data this morning, about 90% of those deals that were reported, um, we don't have an idea of what the value of that deal was. So since these deals are made by private companies, we just don't know kind of the magnitude of where the investment money is going and kind of how big the valuations of these firms were when they were acquired. So why does this matter? Well, last week, as I said before, I was in Lithuania and I had a great time learning about their growing fintech ecosystem. And in the past couple of months, new regulations have brought lots of large companies to Lithuania in the fintech space. And what they've been doing upon arrival is buying lots and lots of local startups. However, these deals are rarely reported, and they're often conducted privately, and you'd only know about them if you're speaking with the people that are directly involved and things that are shared in confidence. So from the outside, you would have no idea that these deals are being done. You also wouldn't know that there's lots of exit activity going on in this geography. So without reporting on it, you don't really have an idea about what's actually happening there. And the fact that these things are done in the ecosystem tells us that there's some really real talent and some interesting technologies that people are working on that are attractive enough for foreign and local buyers. But if it's not reported on, you wouldn't know otherwise. So it's a complete black box. And certainly the same thing is happening in other ecosystems as well. But when we don't have public data about these things, it gives the impression that nothing's happening. Similarly, we often learn about acquisitions long after they're done, so it means our understanding about the ecosystem is outdated. For example, one of Apple's acquisitions in Europe, the Italian company Stamplay, an API-based backend development platform, was hinted to in March, 
So this deal has never been publicly announced, only allegedly on sites such as Mac Rumors and elsewhere. But I did some digging around with the internet wayback machine, and you can notice from Stanplay's online persona and positioning, things really changed with the company around summer of last year. So they wiped their blog, a lot of their personal outreach that they were doing, and their social media around that time. Other recent alleged acquisitions by Apple in Europe include the British A&R startup Platoon and Data Tiger, a, de- a digital marketing company, and the Danish startup Spectral, which focuses on green screen technology. But we don't have complete information about these deals and what other deals Apple might be doing around the continent. And since Apple has so many devoted fans, there really is a ton of people that are invested in following their new purchases. So we actually have more oversight on Apple than we might have otherwise. So for other possibly less sexy acquiring companies, we have even less information. So when we're talking about acquisitions, know that there might often be much more than meets the eye. And I would really encourage those that work with economic development offices or VCs that are profiting off of these acquisitions, for example, it's really in the interest of everyone in the ecosystem to make these deals more transparent. And if you know if a company has been bought by Apple or someone else lately, let us know about it so that our data and insights can be the best they can be. Yeah, I have to agree that most probably, at least in Europe, the bulk of uh, the M&A activity is probably not uh, not being publicized at all. And it's mostly smaller sort of deals uh, uh, with uh, companies that uh, are much less high profile than Apple or Facebook or Google or whatever. Yeah, I see that a lot as well. And every year, kind of at the end of year, kind of reports about what are some of the metrics that have come across the ecosystem in the last year. Everyone wants us to be reporting on kind of the magnitude of the deals. But it's really hard to do that truthfully when we know that there's so much more happening beneath the surface that we just don't have access to. And we don't want to give a distorted version of events. Uh, so it, it does make things pretty challenging. Yeah, I think we should just start circulating an anonymous survey uh, for corporates in Europe. Did you acquire anyone this year? Did you disclose the price? Did you disclose the fact? That would be at least some indication, I suppose. And I mean, there must be some strategic reason of why they're keeping these or com- competitive reason why they're keeping these deals secret. But I really think that there should be greater transparency on this issue. And it definitely benefits everyone else, especially startups, um, when they're thinking about where they might fit in the market and also where they might potentially have interest from corporates. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, That would require a movement, though, for sure. Now, while we're on the topic of the European ecosystem, here is our pre-recorded interview. And this is a conversation with Isidro Lasso, the former head of uh, Startup Europe, uh, which was recorded by uh, Robin Wouters, our editor, on the last day uh, that uh, Isidro was in that office. So check this one out and we'll be back in a second uh, with uh, events and uh, recommendations. First for Tech.eu, I'm here in Brussels sitting now with Isidro Lasso, who I think many of the ecosystem and many of our listeners will know as the head of Startup Europe, which has been for the last what, eight years now, uh, at DG Connect uh, within the European Commission for the last 18 years, so in Brussels since 2001, I think you told me. And this is your last day as a head of Startup Europe, so it's a very, very good opportunity to catch up 
Isidro, welcome uh, to this meeting and uh, this podcast. And the first thing I want to ask you is in those 18 years at DigiConnect, uh, what are some of the things that you've learned and you know, what some of the changes that you've seen in within the commission, but also the European tech ecosystem? Yeah, thank you, Roman, for inviting me to, to address your listeners, uh, the podcast. I'm one of the listeners of the Tech.eu podcast regularly. Uh, yeah, the, in these 18 years, I have seen a huge evolution in the commission and in the, in Europe, moving from science and research into innovation and entrepreneurship. When I started in the commission, I was, I was myself a researcher in the, in Corba technology, work, workflow management systems. And uh, at that moment, very few people was talking about innovation, and the innovation was done mainly by the big companies. And of course, no one was talking about the kind of entrepreneurship we are talking now. The entrepreneurship that was talked about was more building, I mean, creating your your uh, bookshop or this kind of entrepreneurship, not the kind of entrepreneurship we are talking now. And in the last eight years, we have seen a huge uh, evolution, and that I think I have contributed slightly through the, the activities with the Startup Europe. Well, you're being too modest, uh, but can you tell us maybe how Startup Europe in the first place was created, why it was created, and how it has evolved since then? Yeah, well, it actually was created in 2011, in November, and was created first uh, in order to, to work with the European social networks. You may remember the 20 of these lives, of this world, mm. that all of them has disappeared, but at that moment, ages ago, they were leaders in their national markets, but they were not expanding outside their national markets. So we wanted to, and this was the first type of startup the commission has ever worked. And we wanted that they get together, that they support one another. They, they didn't want it. Actually, they thought that the Facebook was never going to be the leader in Spain or in the right. Netherlands, etc. And then we saw what has happened, but at that moment, that was the belief. And that's how we started. We started with the, the social networks, talking directly with the founders for the first time by the commission, talking with founders and not talking with the managers, with MBAs. And from there, we started to move into another type of founders. We discovered there is something called a startup. Ages ago, no one knew who was a startup. And the only word in use in the commission was SMEs or maybe innovative SMEs, but not the word in startups. And how that's how Startup Europe started with the, the social networks in Europe. And then we moved to the other type of startups and investors and corporates working with startups, universities working with startups. And that's how Startup Europe was created. Yeah, lots of initiatives in those eight years. Uh, but eight years is also sort of a, an eternity in the startup world. So, so I'm guessing the, the Startup Europe itself is a different beast now within a different structure in a different context. Um, this is your last day at Startup Europe officially. Um, what does it look like today and how is it going to evolve in the future within the context of the, the other changes that the commission is going through? So, yeah, Startup Europe started in 2011 with the social networks and started mainly uh, solving the problem of the lack of awareness in Europe about what was a startup. In, in those times, 2000, not 2011, 2012, 2013, even 14, people were talking about the startups in the States and this looked like a, a, a American phenomenon that could never enter into Europe. So that's where we were focusing at that moment. Later, we focused very much on the on building bridges between corporates and um, founders because this was a big problem. 2014, 15, maybe 16, and later we uh, we started to to see that the the maturity of the local ecosystems in Europe has uh, evolved a lot that there were many local ecosystems in Europe that uh, at the beginning, 2012, 13, 14, there were a few of them, maybe a handful of them, London, Berlin, and a few others. 
And, and now we discovered that there was a lot of them. And then the, the, the last three years, we have been focusing on connecting those local ecosystems so that the startups who are in one ecosystem, if they are not able to find investors in that particular local ecosystem, they might find investors in another ecosystem in Europe. So instead of building a Silicon Valley in Europe, that, that was a concept that we completely forgot about like in 2015, mm -hmm. uh, we decided that that was not the European way to move forward. The European way was to build many local ecosystems hubs in Europe and connecting them. And that's what we have been doing. And that's where we are focused now in the, in the start of Europe. Uh, at this moment, we are focusing on that and also in trying to leverage foundations and institutional investors. That has the, in my opinion, the big problem nowadays in Europe is lack of institutional investors investing in the, uh, as LPs in the, in the VCs in uh, uh, funds in Europe. Great. Well, curious to see how that evolves. Um, I recently had the chance and the fortune to sit down with uh, Mr. Carlos uh, Moedas, who's a commissioner for science, innovation and research uh, for the European Commission. And very good meeting. Uh, one of the things that I remember is the European Innovation Council and how is it, how it's going to evolve. And um, sort of that brings me to your new role that's going to start uh, from tomorrow. So maybe you can talk about what's next. Yeah, well, as of tomorrow, 1st of May, I will start being the deputy head of the uh, new uh, Innovation Ecosystems Unit that is part of the EIC, or the European Innovation Council. The European Innovation Council, for you to remember and um, your listeners, is like the European DARPA. And uh, it has many similarities with, with them, but it's, it's a bit more sophisticated type of instrument. We have two pillars in the uh, European Innovation Council. Is one is the finance, financing uh, pillar. There will be a budget of 10 billion euros for the, for the startups that will not be giving, giving most of that money in grants, but will be more blended instrument, blended finance and also even equity. It's completely innovative for a public administration in Europe taking equities in startups. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the other pillar is the pillar that they will be co-leading, that is the innovation ecosystem. So we will try to ensure that on the one hand that the, the beneficiaries of the European Innovation Council, once the money that, that they have got from the Commission ends, they are able to get money in the next step. So getting access to, to VCs and corporates and, and public administrations through public procurement to get more funding and getting customers. And uh, on the other hand, in the, in the, with my new role, I will also be working with the member states because now the situation is almost all member states, all regions in Europe, they have programs for the startups. So my, the second part of the ecosystem, innovation ecosystems is working with the member states and the regions to try to, that they spend the money for the startups programs that they have in the best possible way. For, for example, did you know that more than 60% of the money spent by public authorities in the startup programs goes to the real estate? Don't go to the startups or to the startup ecosystem builders like, like you. They go to, go to the real estate. So they're building new, they're constructing new buildings for the startups when they, there might be no need for that. So we need to work with the member states, with the regions, the local authorities to, to see what is the best possible way of spending the money for every particular local, local ecosystem. And every local ecosystem has the need for a different recipe. So what is, has been working in London or in Estocolm might not be working in Milano or in Madrid or in Salamanca. So we need to, or in Malaga. So we need to ensure that every local ecosystem develops the ecosystem based uh, taking advantage of their strengths and also looking for complement, complementarities with other local ecosystems in Europe. Great. 
Well, some big problems to tackle, some big plans, and also some big budgets, if I uh, understand you correctly. Uh, how is it going to be distributed and structured? Like, what can people expect uh, the European Innovation Council to look like from their uh, perspective as a startup or an organization or a corporate? So, from the financing part, the first pillar, the the money or the, yeah, the money will be uh, given equity etc will be given not based on paper will be given uh, based on interviews so face to face interviews that is very very innovative so we will not be giving money based exclusively on the idea but always considering the people the person behind looking at the eyes of the people and even more innovative is that the selection will not be done by the commission officers will be done by uh, private investors and the commission officer will be there as an observer to ensure transparency and equal treatment to everybody. But this is also very, very innovative, the way the, the, the money will be given. So you can expect a, a open call for the entrepreneurs in Europe to apply for that. We are looking for entrepreneurs who are not, who are not thinking on developing a website and that's it. We are looking more for on those who are working in the deep tech. So they have a deep tech component within their their uh, and their idea, uh, not necessarily IT deep tech could be biotech or could be nanotech or could be any kind of, of of technology, but advanced technologies, and and then they will apply. They will need to write a few pages, of course, to make a first screening of who we are going to invite to the interviews, and they will have to come to the interview, make a good performance, convincing the inter the investors that they are the ones who are the best uh, people to get the, the the money from the from the taxpayers in Europe. And then once they are part of our pool of, of startups, they will be able to benefit from the new innovation ecosystems activities. I mentioned before the budget for the first part financing is 10 billion. The budget for the ecosystems part is uh, half a billion, so 500 million euros that will be spent, as I said, in building bridges between these beneficiaries and the investors, corporates, uh, public administrations around Europe, also international activities, and help ensuring that the, uh, the money from the member states is also supporting these, can, these beneficiaries. So that's the two type of things that they can expect from the EAC. Great. Well, looking forward to seeing how that evolves. Um, what does it mean for Startup Europe, though? Because you've managed to build something of a brand that's very well recognized also within political circles, but also from the startup ecosystems with the activities and the events that you've done. So is that going to disappear or is Startup Europe going to be kept, but in a different way? Like, what's it going to look like? Yeah, uh, Startup Europe will be uh, will not disappear. On the contrary, will be reinforced. It's mentioned as part of the innovation ecosystems of the, of the European Innovation Council. So we will continue the branding. We will continue the same type of activities that is working with ecosystem players as, as, as we have been working until now. And, uh, but will be reinforced with more resources in the commission in terms of, of, of human resources. So we are moving from a small team of three commission officers to 18. And also in terms of budget, we are moving from uh, um, 30 million in seven years to 500 million in the same uh, period. So it's a huge increase for Startup Europe. Uh, we will need to also work on the branding of the European Innovation Council, this European DARPA that I was mentioning before. So we will have two different brandings and we will be working um, back to back one with the, with the other. So Startup Europe will not disappear, will continue and will be reinforced. Um, great. What does it mean for um, the people who are currently working at startup organizations, maybe the lobbying organizations or the local um, you know, council members, uh, startup organizations? Um, is it going to change the way that they work with you? Well, no, the, the, we will continue working as we have been working until now. On the one hand, we will, con we will uh, be based on calls for proposals or call for tenders that they will apply. 
and this will be part of the activities. And the second activity will be more the bottom-up activities. So we are, you know, that in Startup Europe, we are looking and being alert of what is happening in the ecosystem and supporting them. And a good example of this is how Tech.eu was created, that we were uh, aware of you together, Robin, together with with Alex uh, Barrera, with uh, Roxanne Barça, John Brackford, Yvonne Spiegel, that you were <laughs> trying to do something in this area, having an European media organization focused on startups. We were very interested in supporting that, and we were able to support you politically speaking, and also with a small uh, grant at the beginning. So we will continue working like that. So we will be alert what the people in the ecosystem is, is, is doing. I welcome you to contact me. You plan to do something that is supporting the ecosystem. And we may be able to support you politically, as we did with Tech.eu, financially, maybe, as we did also with Tech.eu. And uh, in any case, will be, it's always good for us to know what the ecosystem is, is, is working on and where it, whatever it makes sense also to, to support the, the activities of the ecosystem. So. Great. Uh, well, we'll see. But uh, quite impressed that you still remember the names of all of our initial co-founders. Uh, and thank you for all the support uh, over the years, of course. Maybe a final question, because as we all know, um, a commission tends to change. That means commissioners uh, tend to change. Like, how confident are you that these plans with the European Innovation Council are going to stay sort of pointed in the right direction? So the good thing with the, the EAC, and this is a big difference with the Startup Europe, is the Startup Europe was never in a, in an official legal text approved by the member states and the, and the members of the European Parliament. The European Innovation Council and the Innovation Ecosystem Activities that I'm going to co-lead are part, full part of the, of the, of the legal text of Horizon Europe. So it's part of a legal text that has been approved and endorsed by the members of the European Parliament and by the uh, members of the of the European Council. So it's there to stay. It's very clear who we need to do. I'm confident that whoever uh, replaces Carlos Moedas as commissioner uh, will be supporting this as well because it's already in the legal text. And, of course, we will count on the energy and, and, and the strength of the person that will replace Carlos to, to continue providing the leadership that is needed because leadership is the third pillar. We were talking about ecosystem, we were talking about financing, but we need leadership. We had a, a strong leader in, in Europe many years ago, Nelly Cruz, that many of you might know, um, remember, and we have had Carlos Mueda. We have been lucky enough to count with the support of, of Carlos Mueda as leader on this. We need to have a similar type of uh, political leadership in Europe to support the startups to be born in Europe and grow in Europe or elsewhere, but always keeping close connections to, to Europe. Great. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed for that. But I think I speak for a lot of people uh, when I say that you've been instrumental in, you know, if anything, just bridging the gap between the commission, which are or like the policymakers in general, often viewed as in an ivory tower. I think you've done a lot at like talking to startup founders directly, um, visiting ecosystems and really bringing organizations together. Uh, so I think you've done a lot more for startups in Europe than, than people realize. Uh, so congratulations on your track record already. Thank and you. let's hope that this continues in the future as well. Thank you, Robbie, for your nice words. I know that they count with the, with the sympathy of many people of the consistent. And I also... I always say to my colleagues in the commission, be careful if you start working with a startup because it's like a virus and you become part of the startup movement and then you start to have a, I mean, it's very, very good because you have, you have a lot of energy, positive energy 
you have to be careful because you need to have a balance with your family as well. <laughs> but this is, has been a great experience for me to be working with people like you, Robin, and many others in the startup ecosystem. And I, co I hope I will be able to continue to provide my small grain of uh, to, to, to the ecosystems. Great. The positive kind of virus, I would say. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Isidro, and best of luck in the new role. Thank you very much, Robin. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. Just uh, checked out a great interview with Isidro Lassa. Isidro, thanks so much uh, for your help. You're most probably listening to us now. Uh, thanks a lot for all the work uh, that you did as the head of uh, Startup Europe. And uh, we do uh, hope to see you again. Now, uh, let's uh, talk about the future, the near future that is in this case. Natalie, what's going on in the events landscape? Yeah, so we are into May now, and as we've been discussing over the last few weeks, there's so many different things going on, and there's really no excuse to have an empty dance card this month. So this week, let's some let's add some more events to your calendar. So of course, as we mentioned before, Andre is heading to the next web in Amsterdam, and I will be going to Vienna for Pioneers. But elsewhere, on May 15th at Station F in Paris, there's a really cool event taking place, which is called Afrobytes. And it's an event that serves as a connection point between the African tech industry and Europe. And they have three stages of activities, and they're bringing lots and lots of African startups to Paris from places like Ghana, Morocco, South Africa, Nigeria, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're doing a number of workshop sessions to get to know the African tech scene and also to give participants the opportunity to learn some of the unique lessons of doing business on the African continent. And if I could think of one event that can really take you outside of the European tech bubble that many of us operate in, I think it would be this one. And I can really imagine what an incredible event this will be. So it's a shame I'm going to miss it. But if you're in Paris on May 15th, Check out the link in our show notes and try to make it. It looks awesome. And the next event that I want to highlight this week is, well, you're going to find me next week on the 16th and 17th of May, and that's Latitude 59 in Tallinn, Estonia. And I have quite a soft spot for Estonia and Everyone on the tech EU team has really kind of an affinity for the Baltic tech ecosystems. And Latitude is a great event that, quote, this, quote, flagship startup and tech event of the world's first digital society, end quote. So expect many of the normal things you find at all of the best tech events from the expo area to Ignite Talks and several pitching competitions, which I'm really looking forward to. So if you haven't been to Estonia yet, you really need to make it out there and check it out soon. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, please check the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, please let us know at the link in the show notes. As a matter of fact, I do love the Baltic startup ecosystem and I have never been to Estonia. This is a... An embarrassing, uh, an embarrassing thing to say, but uh, I really, really want to, uh, really want to fix this. Hopefully, this year. Andre, you could have gone to Tallinn this time, but instead you're going cycling. Yeah, I mean, this was planned earlier. This was planned much earlier than uh, the uh, Estonian option. And I think I'm going to enjoy uh, cycling, not much less than uh, a sauna in Estonia. But anyway, uh, uh, tell uh, tell me more when you're back. I'm really looking forward to the stories 
that you will bring. Now, let's move to the next uh, part, uh, to the uh, recommendations. And uh, my today's recommendation is a story that is about technology and uh, it is about journalism. But at the same time, it's not about technology journalism. It's actually about uh, distribution of the news. And the story I'd like you to read is called When Overnight News Came in the Back of Six-Wheeled 100-Mile-Per-Hour Citroën CXs. And it's a really interesting account of uh, actually how newspapers were distributed around Europe in the 1970s. So today, uh, just uh, bringing physical newspapers to newsstands is, as far as I understand, mostly a question of uh, last mile transportation, right? Because the papers themselves, they are distributed digitally uh, and uh, printed locally. So then all you need to do is to just uh, bring the paper from the printing house uh, to the retailer, whatever it is. Now, that was obviously not the case uh, 50 years ago. And, uh, for example, the Financial Times, uh, it was brought to the readers by the cars mentioned in the headline uh, that uh, I uh, uh, called uh, before. And those were customized Citroën CX cars with three axles that could carry a metric ton worth of news and commentary. And a driver of uh, such car would have to ride at more than 150 kilometers per hour the whole night to bring the papers, for example, from Amsterdam to Marseille or uh, from Frankfurt to Rome. So check out this story uh, in the show notes for more details on uh, where these cars uh, come from and even what it was like to drive one. I think this is absolutely fascinating and amazing. This is the tech I like. I probably, I'm probably developing a soft spot for vintage stuff, but uh, I, still, uh, I still love this. What do you think, Natalie? Would you like to drive a six-wheel Citroën? Well, the type of mobility technologies that get me really as excited are things like electric vehicles, self-driving cars, cars that drive in water and flying cars. So maybe this is a bit too vintage for me. Tell someone who just downloaded a uh, game of 1994 and uh, is going to spend a few hours playing it. That's if it works on the modern <laughs> machine. Well, I mean, if it's on Steam, it's supposed to work, right? Hopefully. <laughs> I read your Twitter, so uh, post more screenshots when you're uh, uh, when when you're starting with it. Now, what do you want to recommend? The game? No. So I want to kind of harken back to our special topic this month um, with a piece called "Why Are Investors Eager to Lose Money on Health Tech?" And I also want to talk about the story of CureVac. And I found this piece by a recommendation from Tim O'Reilly, and it fits in with our theme this month really well, um, especially looking closer at medical technologies and digital health. This article takes a case study of a biotech company from the United States called Ubiome that was recently raided by the FBI under the suspicion of fraud. And the company, it kind of some of the, the story sounds a bit like the Theranos story. It is in the business of analyzing gut bacteria and has raised over $100 million from a number of famed Silicon Valley investors, such as Y Combinator and Andreessen Horowitz. The author argues that the fraud could have been somewhat predicted if only the investors spent a bit more time doing due diligence on the science behind Ubiome's product. The scientific team had only published limited academic work in this area, and the work that had been published doesn't seem to validate the cost 
cost and the depth of the test that the company claims to be doing. And it questions why investors from areas outside of the medical field were so keen to invest in this company and why they didn't do enough due diligence here. And so it emphasizes the importance for investors of having domain expertise and the things that they're investing in, but also the big risks that are involved in getting into this space. In Europe, at least, we haven't seen quite as a carefree investment um, into the medical technology space. There are really big costs involved. And in our research, we find that medtech or healthcare technologies garner some of the highest investments in Europe after fintech. And sometimes the risk involved in a cost does make investors wary and holding off in investing in this space especially for innovations that are coming out of university, um, very highly research-intensive um, innovations, it can be a daunting process raising funding. Um, but if you're a founder in this space, don't give up. In the show notes, I want to link to a story of CureVac, which is one of Europe's first true med tech unicorn companies, and the founder story of how they approach fundraising and the importance of tenacity when it comes to raising investment. And it's a great story and worth checking out. And I think a lot of a lot of people don't remember the story of Kierbach, which came about in the early 2000s. It came out of southern Germany, outside of a tech hub, far from what the kind of investment landscape um, in uh, European tech was doing, kind of away from 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 that interest. And they've really turned their um, RNA um, product into something that's really incredible. And it's, it's a true unicorn. They've raised, I think, over 460 million euros and built something that is profitable and really exciting. So it's a great story. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Wow, that's really interesting. I uh, I haven't really heard that much about uh, CureVac. I have to say, it's not it's not a story that uh, everybody knows. I suppose. Yeah, and I, and I hope uh, this will be more well known because what it really demonstrates is that success in European tech can look lots of different ways. And you have something that is highly technical, is a highly um, intricate innovation that really has come out of decades of university research, but they've actually been able to turn it into a very successful biotechnology company. And they haven't been able to kind of go through all the steps that you might do with a SaaS or a fintech company, um, but you are able to really have some some interesting um, success stories there and really provide something that's that's truly of value for a lot of people. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing this. Now we're at the point where everybody knows Theranos and nobody knows CureVac. Let's see if it uh, changes. Now, this is it for today's podcast. It's about time to wrap it up. I do hope you enjoyed listening to it today. And if you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your podcast app of choice. If you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. This will help others to find the show. Tell a friend or colleague for whom it would be relevant about this podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Good luck with your travels. Thanks, Andre, And thank you all for listening. And we will be back as soon as possible. Bye-bye. <laughs>